Well, I would like to introduce you guys to my Converse All-Stars here. Um, they don't look like much, but they meant the world to me. Well, I guess they still, still mean quite a bit to me. Uh, they don't look the greatest. They're full of scuff marks and stuff. But, uh, but when I was a teenager, all of my influences, any, anyone that I th- saw that was really cool usually had those shoes on. All my favorite musicians, all these people... Um, I felt if Jesus were to be on earth, he'd probably be walking around in Converse All-Stars. So for me, me and my friends took it upon ourselves to say, we are going to hunt down these shoes and we're going to wear these shoes because we want to be cool like these guys, right? So we searched everywhere, Devonshire Mall, everywhere. We could not find it. And uh, it was 2001 at that time, 2002. So at that point, we didn't notice at the time, but Converse had gone bankrupt, because they're primarily a sporting shoe, and Nike and all those other shoes sort of blasted by it, and they were sort of left. These shoes are old. They, I believe they first originated like in the early, uh, early 1900s. Uh, 19, in the 1920s, they became famous through Chuck Taylor, who was a uh, basketball coach. But anyway, so rock stars and so on and so forth, uh, later on in the, uh, that century, they took those shoes and they became like the, the official cool shoe. So we couldn't find them anywhere. However, one time we went to Chicago to see Reliant K play at a concert, and we walked into a shopping center because we had time to kill. And lo and behold, in one of their stores, heaven opened up and shone a light onto these shoes. And I'm like, whoa. Needless to say, I bought them right there, put them on, and they were probably the most uncomfortable shoe you've ever, you've ever had. But I guess when you have an image to uphold, you don't care about, <laughs> about comfort. So those shoes have gone with me everywhere. And, and they still, if there's a big event, I'll probably put those shoes on just so I can say, these shoes are with me everywhere. I don't think, ironically, I've wore those when we were giving birth, but who knows, maybe this next one I'll be sporting those shoes. They have been with me through, I, I look at these things, and I know you guys are probably thinking those things probably look and smell really bad, but honestly, I look at those shoes, I don't see scuff marks. I see experiences that I've had with them. I see places that I've gone with them. They, they've been with me when, when I did missions in Paraguay. They, they, they were with me uh, in Belize. They, they were with me when I was uh, volunteering my time at the Steinbeck Drop-In Center, the north end of Winnipeg Drop-In Center called The Bridge. And, and so I see faces. I see relationships. And, and it just, whenever I see it, it, it shows me beautiful marks of where, of where I have been. So they've taken me around the world, and they've brought me places that I never would have expected. You, know, you guys may see scuff marks, but I see beautiful experiences from people stepping on my feet at concerts to uh, a worn-out heel here because uh, we drove to Alberta and back twice to visit some family members we had missed. So I see those heel marks. I see, uh, I, I see Jake and Christy, uh, some family that we don't get to see very often. So I get warmed. I get warm thoughts when I see that. My, my shoes. That's exactly how the gospel works as well. It is not prepackaged McDonald's fries. It's unique and created to fit every single person. It's designed to go with you wherever you are in life, no matter what the circumstances are. A lot of times we treat our faith like Sunday morning shoes. You know, we'll take them. These ones are actually kind of ugly. But you, you polish them up. You take them out of the box. And you wear them that Sunday. And you worship God. And you come back home and take them off and 
polish them up again and put them in the box, put them back in the closet and close the door. A lot of times, for a lot of people, that is the extent of their faith. Gospel does not like that. That was not God's intent for what we believe. God wants, God is not there, uh, our faith is not there to be put into storage or to be placed on a shelf for people to see like a trophy when you get company over. The gospel was built for danger, for wonder, for excitement, and adventure. That's the purpose of the church. And if we achieve any less than that, then we have to question our heart. When I, drop off my, when I dropped off my daughter at South Shore School, it's still unreal to me that Trinity is going to school because it feels like just yesterday she was born. But one neat thing that they do at that school that, that caught my attention is they recite the Lord's Prayer every day in chapel, which is kind of beautiful. There's something beautiful when you hear the Lord's Prayer being said by some four, a group of four-year-olds. Such power in those words that demons must shudder when they hear it. And then that being uttered by children. You know, there's such beautiful poetry in that. But something stuck out to me. And I've said this prayer over and over again in my life. But something jumped out at me. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God desires his kingdom to be broken in on earth. To be reestablished here, now. Not back then. Now. It's breaking in. It's ripping in. Right now, there's an empire. Sin is in this world. And God is like, kingdom's coming. Kingdom's coming. And for Christians, the temptation is always there. You know, we, we watch the news. We're even getting nervous with this presidential uh, election. That's in the States. Really, it's a different country, but some of us are like on edge because it's like, ah, if this person gets in, world's going to end. Jesus going to happen right there, right? So, and then we watch like, oh no, there's hurricanes happening, there's earthquakes happening, terrible things are going on, and, and, and sometimes our reaction is, well, pff, well Jesus is going to come anytime now, and he's going to wipe it all out, you know, and we take a twisted comfort in that, in the judgment, but in a way, when we do that, when I do that, it's like we're sidestepping it, so, well, Jesus is going to deal with that, because he's going to obliterate everybody. And I don't believe that that is God's intent for us. I like what Mordecai said to, to Esther. He said, for you are born, for maybe you are born for such a time as this. You yourself, put your name in the blank. You could have been born in any era. You could have been born 1925 when our forefathers, the Anabaptists, baptized the first adult because of the confession of his faith. You could have been there when Menno Simons on uh, Felix Mons could have been drowned to death because of that conviction. You could have been there. But no, you were born in a very exciting time. You are born in a time where two men in Toronto, a Muslim and a Hindu, could sit down and have a coffee together and not try to kill each other. We are, we are in a time of the internet where we can say the gospel message and it can reach millions of people. What an exciting time. Maybe you were born for such a time as this. And instead of seeing that as like a... Oh, you know, this is a scary time. Uh, these things are happening. Maybe it could be like, bring it on. This is awesome. Bring it on. So maybe you're born for such a time as this. And we have to make sure that we don't, when we see stuff like this happen, that we don't just uh, get overwhelmed and say, well, God's going to come and annihilate it. Because so many times we just want to take the remote 
And just like the parts of the movie you find are boring, press fast forward, you know, and go straight to when you go to heaven, right? A lot of times that's our motivation to be, being Christians is, oh, well, I got to get to heaven, you know? And so we want to fast forward all the hurts, the divorces, the child abuse, all the things that make us cringe. We want to fast forward it. But God has designed you in such a way to, to take it in. Because in reality, it's not even you doing it. It's Jesus Christ. We're just the ambassadors of that. We were designed for it, just like uh, an H1 Hummer was designed to go off-roading. You don't keep that thing in your garage. You take it to the dunes. That's what they're designed for. We were designed for this. When a country is falling apart, there's opposition. First people we should send in there is Christians. Because our kingdom doesn't rely on earthly people. Our kingdom is designed for heaven. Let's read a portion of scripture, uh, Matthew chapter 25, 14 to 30. Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 to 30. Now this is scriptures describing what heaven is like. It's hard to put your finger on this is exactly what heaven or the kingdom of God looks like. So we're going to try to describe to you what the attributes of the kingdom Let's read verse 14. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another he gave two, and to another he gave one. To each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and entrusted uh, with them and traded with them, sorry. And he gave Five talents, and he made five talents more. He, so also, he who had the two talents made two talents more. So they doubled their income. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in, in the ground and hid his master's money. Now that sounds kind of like, in a way, compared to the other guys, we can be, well, that's definitely not as good as doubling it. But if you think about it, if I borrowed you money and you paid me back the same amount of money, we'd be on good terms, right? You would be happy that I just paid you back, right? Uh, but God does not have that same perspective. Let's keep reading. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled account with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents here, and I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done. Good and faithful servant, you have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. In, enter into the joy of your master. And he, also, and he also who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents here. I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. He who, uh, here you have what is yours. So he's giving back the exact same amount he had trusted him. Sounds like a pretty good deal. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. 
You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And to my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So to take the talent from him, so take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has will be given, uh, will more be given. And he who have an abundance, and he will have abundance, sorry. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Wow. Okay. When I read that, it hit me right between the eyes. For two reasons. One reason was I found it interesting how he chose a person with five, a person with two, and a person with one. It's interesting how he didn't do five, three, one. You know, it would have made it a little bit more even. But I, what I like about this scripture is that the response to the guys who took what God gave them and they invested it was the exact same response, good and faithful servant. You know what that tells us about God? It tells us that if you're investing what he gave you, it doesn't matter if you're Billy Graham or the person who's on the chair setup committee. You have the exact same welcoming party. It's not like when Billy Graham goes to heaven, they're going to have cheerleaders, people in the stands holding up Billy Graham signs, and then you're going to come in, and then they're going to be like, oh, yeah, well, I don't know your name, but hey, welcome here. It's cool. Billy's here. Check it out. Get an autograph, right? It's not going to be like that. They've got your name on cards, too. Whether, as long as you're investing in what God gives you, you, you are being mature and you're being responsible with that. And the other thing that hit me is the sense of utter urgency in my life to be investing what God has given me. So oftentimes, we think the primary thing, get saved. Okay, I'm saved? Whew, relax. You know, if missions comes around, you can do something, you can invest it, you can share God's love, but whew, the tough part is out. Right now, you've just been received. You've, God has just given you a gift. But if you look at all the parables that describe the kingdom of God, something peculiar is, is, something, uh, is a theme that, that runs through all of them. And that is that it's like a mustard seed. You know what a mustard seed is? Ever seen one of those? Is? They're, they're, they're tiny little seeds. And if you ever have one planted in your garden, you will not be a very happy person. Um, it says that the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. And it'll grow to be a plant that is so big that like birds can roost in, inside of its branches. Now we think, whoa, must be a huge oak. Actually, no. If you've seen a mustard uh, seed, uh, if you've seen a plant, they're actually not that big. But they're big enough for birds to, to fly into. It's actually a weed. The kingdom of heaven is like a weed. You don't plant weeds in your garden. They just sort of pop up and like, oh, where did that come from? You know, if you have a, a mustard seed and you think you got it all, you rip up your whole garden. You'll be covered in dirt. You'll be like doing a victory dance. And all of a sudden, it'll pop up right here. Oh, and it'll pop up in the most, the places where you will least expect it. That's how the kingdom of heaven is. And it spreads. That's the nature of God's love, God's grace. It spreads like wildfire. It spreads like like, like a mustard seed. Yet, we've turned Christianity into something that's exclusive. We have pockets of it. 
and we're just trying to keep what we have, right? At least that's my first inclination, is to keep what we have. God doesn't see it that way. God's love should ooze out of every corner of our life. This is the last sermon for the missions sermon series. Pastor Ike started it off earlier this month with having a missions heart and, and, and looking etern- internally in order to, to reach out. And then we heard the adventures of, of two missionaries, uh, missionary couples, Carl Wilson and Peter Baker, and, and some of the adventures that they had on the mission field. So what? That's what a professor would often say in Bible college when we would look at, at a, uh, a portion of Scripture. We, we'd take a portion of Scripture, we'd exegete it, take it apart, uh, look at the um, original language, look at the culture, look at the context, and try to get the exact meaning of what it says, and we would like be triumphant once we do it. This is what it means. This is amazing. So what? What does that mean? How does that change you? What is it going to do through you? So what? Pastor Steve once gave a message, and, and he said something that has haunted me ever since. And that is that you only know parts, I don't know, maybe you remember this. He said, you only remember the parts of the Bible that you practice. It's like, whew. You know, sometimes when, when my girls act up at home, it's very easy to get irritated and raise your voice, and, and, and then all of a sudden those words will come. Remember you learned about grace? How are you going to make grace come alive in this instance? You only know parts of the Bible that you practice. Go. Go is sort of the, our conference's whole initiative with missions. Go mission. And that is the only word that I can come up with to best describe what the so what aspect of it is in, in our mission series, go. For some of us, this may mean go quit your job. For some of us, it's go talk to that lonely classmate in the corner of the classroom. It's motion. Go talk. Um, if you're looking for practical ways, go talk to Kevin Rogers, the pastor of the um, uh, New Song Church. And and ask him how you and your family can serve in the soup kitchen every Friday night at 6 p.m. You want an amazing ministry to be a part of? Go, go call Pastor Kevin Rogers at, at New Song Church. Go talk to Pastor Corey at, uh, on Setterington here at the uh, Salvation Army Church and ask how you can get involved in their initiative to help the poor people in our community. You don't necessarily have to go to Papua New Guinea or China in order to do missions. However, that is a part of um, of a lot of our callings. You don't, have to, you don't have to have everything figured out before you go. You just have to go. You, it's not about the, the destination that matters. It's about the journey along the way. And as you go, you're going to figure stuff out about God and God's going to review things. You're going to be like, oh no, what about these oppositions? What about you know, money and stuff? God is going to cause you to grow mountains in your faith. Because as you trust him, he will provide for you. You just have to go. He's beckoning you to move. 
We are in the business of bringing the kingdom to earth. That is our priority. You, do, you are not a trucker. You are not uh, a fabricator. You are not a pastor. You are a kingdom servant, first and foremost. Whether you're a student, whether you're a president, that is what you have to be. We are breaking in the kingdom one relationship at a time. God is asking us to be obedient to that. Isaiah 52.7 says, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. But you want to know something? Something we often forget. And that is that God does not need us to do missions. We have to come to terms with that first thing. God does not need us to do missions. It says in scriptures that in Romans 14, 11, it says, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess to God. When that happens, guess what? We don't have to give these sermons anymore. Some of you are like, yay! Um, but honestly, this is what we do. If you don't like the concept of missions, and, and if, you, if you, you're guessing whether or not, then, then you're going to have to do a diagnostic on, on your heart and how it works because this is the only reason. This is, this is the mission of the church. We often say the word missions as if there's lots of different missions for God. God only has one mission. There's only one mission of God. And that is to be glorified on earth. That's the only thing that exists. And that's the only thing that really matter, should matter to us. And the only reason why we do mission, the only reason why we do mission is that is the best way that we can on earth make God glorified in the, in the, simple, in the, in the simplest ways you can describe it. That is, this is the best way that we can glorify God is to, is to do mission. But when Jesus returns... We won't have to do that because God's going to be glorified. All the mission stuff that needs to be done, he will do it like that. It tells me something about God. It's kind of neat. If God could do it, why doesn't he do it? I see God in an arena playing some sort of sports. and We can be on the bleachers and we're cheering. And God doesn't just obliterate uh, his opponent. He makes eye contact with us and he's like, come on, come on, join us. You know? He wants us to join in on him. I remember one time I went to Disneyland, and I was seven years old. I will never forget this. And, and I was watching a guy on a unicycle. There were hundreds of people watching this guy on a unicycle, and he was doing some cool tricks. I was, like, I, I was just a little Mennonite boy. I've never seen a guy ride a bicycle with one tire. I didn't know what to think. And, and he had a bunch of bowling pins. And out of all the hundreds of kids that were there, I raised my hand, and he chose me. This little Mennonite boy from Leamington. I was ecstatic. I went out there, and I'm like, I know it. I was going to throw the pins at him. And he's no, 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 just, you know. And, and so I got to be a part of the show. And I felt like a little Mennonite celebrity going up there and passing this guy, you know, the, the pins. And this guy took him and started juggling, and I felt like I was, I was part of the action, that's exactly what God is doing. 
He's saying, man, don't look at the world and be depressed with all this stuff. This is your time to shine, to make my reality big, make it real, break in the kingdom. Go ahead, go flick some mustard seeds in people's lives. Allow it to spread like wildfire. That's our purpose, you know? Most of this stuff is a heart issue, not a financial issue, not necessarily an emotional issue. This is a heart issue. We're here to bring glory to God no matter what way we can. Now, there's a lot of opposition. We need to highlight some of that. Our culture is riddled with bad theology. Satan needs to distort our theology. He needs to take our mind off the task at hand. He needs to distract us because if we found the truth, if we realized the power we have through God, well, then we would be unstoppable. It would literally be like a mustard seed the, the government wouldn't know what to do with us. They did that in Rome. Rome fell. It just, it, took, it takes over. God's love, it, you can't snuff it out. And the more you try to snuff it out, the more that it spreads. We are filled with bad theology. It's become an, ingrained in our textbooks. It's been ingrained in our news broadcasts. And it has even infected pulpits all over the world, but especially North America because we got so many beautiful, shiny objects that are sort of getting us distracted from this truth. Joel Osteen is an American author, a televangelist, and a senior pastor at Lakewood Church in Houston, Texas. His ministry alone reaches over 7 million. 7 million. Sometimes we don't... Realize, we say million as if it's not a lot. Do you know a million seconds ago is like 1972? A billion seconds ago, it was like in the 1500s. Seven million uh, broadcast media, uh, there are seven million broadcast media views weekly in over 100 nations around the world. His books are titled as follows. Your Best Life Now. Become a better you. It's your time. Starting your best life now. I guess maybe he forgot a chapter in the beginning of the last one. I don't know what. But notice the, and I don't mean to pick on Joel Austin here, but when you see a theology like this and it's reaching so many people, we need to come to terms and we need to recognize that a theology that revolves around me, that revolves around us, and what God can do for us is satanic. And I'm not saying what he is doing is satanic, but the message of selfishness and the message that it's all about us, in essence, is satanic. I know a lot of people have been changed through his ministry. I believe lots of people have come to Christianity through his ministry. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to point fingers here, but I want us to realize this truth here. That it's not about me, it's about God. That's the starting point of worship. We need to glorify him in everything that we do. Psalm 96, 4 says, For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He's most worthy of praise, not me. He is to be feared above all gods. Revelation 4, 11, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. And by your will, they were created and have their being. The gospel was never intended to be a self-help book. Although we treat it like one, 
to be a better us, to make more money, believe in this prosperity gospel. It's, the gospel is not about reaching our full potential. It is not about reaching our full potential. It's about unleashing God's potential through us. The gospel is about making, it's not about making a better you, it's about lowering ourselves in order to lift God up. That is what it's about. A lot of times we think that, and a lot of people in this world, especially Africa, the gospel has gone down an inch thick and a mile wide. So everyone becomes a shallow type of Christian, and we believe that after we become Christian, all our problems will go away, we'll make more money, and we follow these, these golden carrots, we follow these shiny objects, and it's distracting us from the truth. And it takes us away from the mission that God has set before us. The gospel is what God has done. It's the message of grace that he has set us free. We can't be naive. We can't think that missions is simply just for us to go and to, to move into another country, sell everything that we have and do that. For some people it is, but not necessarily for everybody. Like I said before, missions, I believe, is a heart issue. Mission happens when we preach the, the, the gospel and disciple thousands of people in a single um, evangelical um, uh, tent night in India to helping out little uh, children in our uh, VBS uh, ministry at church. Missions happens on all views of the spectrum. And every single person involved, as long as they're going, will be greeted in heaven with, well done and faithful servant. And it's not necessarily a choice, oh, if I'm a Christian, I have to do this. When you follow Jesus, you are compelled to go out there and do this. It's not necessarily a choice. It's the nature of it. And you're affecting lives everywhere that you go, whether you expect it or not. I remember I took a mission trip to um, it was the Nelson House. Nelson House is a community that's in northern Manitoba. And uh, I believe there's some SBC students here. If you guys, uh, second year was probably the most the biggest, had the biggest impact on my life because I got to go to uh, a community and, uh, and, and live with these First Nations people in northern Manitoba, and they shaped my life. I remember specifically this one, this one instance. We got to stay with this beautiful woman. I think she's like 75 years old or something like that, 75, 80 years old, and, and her name was Bella, and she just radiated Jesus' love. And we came back late one night, and there were kids staying at her house. And we're like, are these all yours? And she's like, no. And she explained to us that a lot of these kids come here because they, they go home after school and their parents are passed out on the ground and they don't know if they're dead or alive. And so they get scared and they come to Bella and they stay at her house till the morning when the parents sober up and they get up and the kids can go home. Really, really sad story. And our hearts broke for them. And I didn't think much of it. I saw this little boy, I believe his name is Simon. I, I, I hung out with Simon. I connected with him. We had a lot of you know, good times together and relationship with him. And coming home, it's so easy to forget some of the seeds that you plant in people's lives. And I remember coming back home to Leamington yet, and I'd just done SBC. I started roofing, and I felt like 
My life was going nowhere. I had so many things going for me. And yet, I had limited the gospel to just doing ministry and official ministries. I was roofing here. I was putting shingles on a roof and, and feeling, having a pity party, being like, oh, man, I should be doing something now, something significant, you know? And, and then all of a sudden, I get a phone call from my wife, and she had explained to me that, that some missionaries had gone back up there after we had left, and one of the boys there, his name was Simon, had shaved his head. And they thought it was kind of funny. And, uh, and I'm like, why in the world? Because if you know anything about uh, First Nation cultures, it's that they take a lot of pride in their long hair, right? It goes back to their roots. And here's a boy who did the exact opposite and shaved his head. So it was a bit of an issue, and I'm like, why in the world? What would possess him to do that? And um, they said, well, he wanted to be more like you. And it hit me that, that I had impacted his life so much that he... So right now there's a bald kid running around in northern Manitoba because I had impacted his life. He went against his cultural norms. Um, and, and I couldn't help but think, like, wow. You know, and it, it just made the picture so clear for us, for, for myself, what, what missions is. But building relationships one person at a time. I don't know about you, but when I go to heaven, I want to be greeted with, with the God handshake and him looking me in the eyes and saying, well done and good, good and faithful servant. That is my desire. And that is my desire for you as well. If you, if you look at the end of, of Matthew, I'm sorry, yeah, well, Matthew, you get, you get this beautiful little spiel from Jesus. He talk, tells him what to do. He says, uh, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy uh, Spirit, uh, teaching them to observe what I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Just perfectly. And then he ascended. And now if this was a musical, it would, it would just end perfectly with da 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 You would know that the song is done. If you go to the end of Mark, it's a little bit different. You have, and then Lord Jesus Christ, after he had spoken to them, uh, was taken up out of heaven and sat down at the right hand of God, and then went, and then they went out and preached everywhere, where the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs to be continued. A lot of theologians thought that they were missing a whole portion of Mark, because it's like, this shouldn't be to be continued in the gospel. This is ridiculous. But it's a to be continued. Why? It was a clever way of ending this book because it was like saying the baton of missions is being passed. Go, 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 go. Run, 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 run. You know, and we got to take it. Mark is still being written. Mark is still going on and it involves us. We are part of this story. That is just a beautiful, beautiful beckoning for us to be a part of this story. So many of us have a pair of Converse. So many of us want to keep it in the box. We want to put it in our closet, polish it up every once in a while. I want to encourage you, put the shoes on. Take chances. Travel to uncharted territories in your life. 
Trust God and go. Get some scuff marks. Have people step on your feet. Get embarrassed. Get some scars. They're good scars. They're marks of love. Just do something. Have muddy shoes. Get dirty. You know, and open up doors in your life you didn't know existed because through Jesus Christ, anything is possible. Put them on, wear them, take chances, and go. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for your gospel. Thank you so much for the nature that it has to change us. Thank you that even though you didn't have to, you involved us in this beautiful picture, this beautiful, elegant play that you've designed where even the strongest Christian is just a fumbling toddler raising its hands, wobbling over to you, and and, and you continue to beckon it. You continue to beckon us just so that we can go with you and along with you to get our hands dirty and to break in and establish your kingdom of praise and worship. God, thank you so much for who you are, what you have done in our church, God, and and I'm I'm excited to to see I'm feeling, when I talk to people, I fear this, this stirring in their heart that they need to do something. And even after last service, God, thank you so much for the, for the people who have even gone up to me and asked me and inquired about this soup kitchen that's going on, God. There's so many ways that we can get involved in breaking your kingdom in, God. Thank you so much for, for what you will do through us. We pray these things in your name. Amen.